So before I introduce this week's episode, I just want to give a little overlay because when I recorded this um, at the time, uh, we were talking about my love of wine, uh, which I do love wine. I think uh, it has its place in very small to moderate amounts. Uh, It's something that I... I personally feel robs you of your next day if you uh, if you drink any more really than one to two glasses. And so I think where I come out on alcohol is if, if you can't stop at one to two, then you probably shouldn't be drinking it. But at the moment, I'm actually completely alcohol free. And the reason for that is I wanted to fill you in on what I'm doing is I'm doing a big experiment with a couple of companies at the moment to really dive into my HRV data my deep slow wave sleep and my REM sleep. And I'm looking at different techniques in terms of enhancing heart rate variability and also different meditative um, methods, methods of meditation, should I say, um, and using things like binaural beats and a combination of that with some breath work to really elevate my HRV. So I'll be sharing more on that. It's an exciting experiment that I'm doing. But because of that, I am not drinking alcohol at all. And that's because I do see any amount of alcohol seems to cause a depression in HRV. And I've tracked that both with an aura ring and um, a whoop strap. And I don't feel that really there's any amount of um, of alcohol that I could drink, even, even a glass, that wouldn't affect that in some way when I've been looking at my data Uh, over a period of time. And that might be because as a busy mum of three children, if I was going to have a glass of wine, it would occur in the evening. And I'm someone that gets up very early and so goes to bed a bit earlier. So actually creating that distance between bedtime and any consumption of alcohol is also quite a hard thing to do. So if you're listening to this, something to think about is yes, there are benefits seemingly uh, in some of the blue zones that have been identified with drinking certain types of wine like Cannonale. Um, But overall, the research on alcohol doesn't seem great in terms of any health enhancements. And what I personally find is that I don't think I ever feel as good as when I have a very long sustained period of time without any alcohol at all. And so I do know people who kind of limit it to kind of a glass a day uh, or a glass to two a few times a week. Actually, when I've tracked that, I'm never really on as top form as when I haven't drank for a number of weeks or months at a time. And so as part of this experiment, really to understand my sleep much, much better on a much deeper level and my HRV and what influences that and specifically how I can upgrade those aspects of my health. I'm actually alcohol free currently. Um, so I'll keep you posted on how those experiments go. As you know, I love doing any kind of biohacking and really, really diving into the detail and understanding those metrics. And I just wanted to share that with you because if you're listening, uh, we do talk about my love of wine in here and it's not that I don't have a love of wine. I do. And in fact, we have some some great wines stored away um, and we've invested in, in wine. Now, whether we're ever going to drink it uh, remains to be seen on the basis of my experimentation. But I just wanted to share that with you. So I'll keep you posted on those experiments. Uh, but now let's get into today's episode because I think you're going to have some fun. The whole Blue Zone thing started was in Olianas in Sardinia, which is where the researchers yeah. kind of looked around and was like, God, there's a lot of old people. 
And Olianus uh, makes a version of Cannonau, which is the Italian word for Grenache. But because it's grown on an island, the skins are like twice as thick because of the sunlight. So the, the resveratrol quantities are like double what you would see in normal wines. And they believe that that, that blue zone uh, is really 100% intrinsically linked to the, the resveratrol in the can. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. So we are going to have some fun on today's episode. My guest is Michael Jurgens, who's a senior partner at Deloitte, um, where he runs the winery solution practice. But he is also a certified specialist of wine. He's a certified sommelier. He's a stage two candidate to become the 61st American to qualify as a master of wine. He's founded his own wine company, the Bhutan Wine Company, and is leading the development of the wine industry in this magical Himalayan country. He also owns the award-winning SoCal Rum Company. Um, he plays the drums in a punk rock band. He's friends his free time, running adventure races in exotic locations around the world, building hot rods and driving with diving, sorry, with great white sharks and racing motorcycles. He has a lot of fun, a lot of energy and achieves a ton because he's also a best-selling author of the book, Drinking and Knowing Things. And he has so much knowledge. He's super into biohacking. Uh, he loves wine, which I also love, You'll, as you'll know. And so we talk about different wines, wines we love, ones that you can get that have higher levels of resveratrol and have been um, associated with longevity in the blue zones. We also talk about time management, how much sleep you really need, how to biohack things like sleep and how to use things like binaural beats and meditation when you're tired to kind of upgrade your energy, your mental focus and everything else. And so there's just so much packed into this episode. It's a lot of fun. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. So without further delay, let me introduce you now to Michael Jurgens. So I think this is going to be a really fun interview. I'm sitting down here with Michael Jurgens. We've been chatting about the common interests that we share in health optimization, performance, biohacking, and also interestingly, wine drinking. Uh, so I think this is going to be a fun conversation. It's awesome to have you here, Michael. First of all, a very warm welcome to the show. Thanks, Angela. I'm stoked to be here. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, so I'm thinking like where to start. We have so much that we can talk about. I guess uh, let's start with, I know you're a very senior partner at Deloitte. You have a big, big role in terms of your full-time position, and yet you manage to do all this fun stuff on the, on the side. Uh, and you have the SoCal um, rum company, you have a wine company, you've just published the book, Drinking and Knowing Things, which is a bestseller. Uh, this is just really amazing. So we can dive into the optimization, but I guess from a starting point, just really introduce yourself and what your love is and, and the difference you're trying to make in the world. Sure, so um, Mike Jurgens, I'm a, a wine expert. Um, I'm working on becoming the 61st American to be certified as a master of wine, which a stat I like to drop is there's more astronauts in the U.S. than there are masters of wine. So that's how esoterically geeky that uh, that title is. But um, really passionate about wine, written a number of wine books. I run the wine practice for, you know, a global consulting firm. Um, and I started the wine industry in the kingdom of Bhutan, just in the Himalayas, because I thought it would be cool if they made wine there. 
Um, I have a, a rum company as well. We have the highest rated platinum rum um, in the world. And uh, I, I do a bunch of geeky adventure races too. Um, yes. yes, which I want to dive into as well. But I guess for people listening first off, right, the, the first thought is how do you actually fit all of this in? Even for someone listening who's thinking, I'm in a full-time job, maybe I want to start a side hustle, or, you know, I am working really hard, but I do want to compete in races, or, I mean, any one of these things you do, right, is, is an incredible feat, or I'm full-time in this business, but now I want to take a course in something else. So actually to become a master of wines is no small feat, which you're doing, you have to study. What is the trick here? And I know we're going to dive into some optimization strategies, but I think if we just start very sort of high level, how are you managing your time? Because you have a very intense travel schedule as well. Yeah, so I think, you know, the people, you know, we talk a lot about self-limiting beliefs. And I believe that, that the people that are sitting there going, oh, I wish I could, but I don't have enough time. You do. You just have to figure out how to, how to manage your life differently. And one of the analogies that I always use was an Ironman race. Like even people who are competitive athletically to do an Ironman is, wow, that is a big deal. And then Rich Roll came out and he said, I'm going to do five Ironmans in five days, mm. back to back. And everyone said, that's impossible. You can't do that. And then he went out and did it. And then everyone said, oh my God, you're the greatest person that's ever lived. And then the Iron Cowboy came out and said, I'm going to do 50 of them in 50 days. And just to make it harder, I'm going to do a different state in the United States every day. So I'm going to travel every night from state to state and do 50. And everyone said, that could never happen. And then he went out and did it. And then he said, you know what? I bet I could do 100 in 100 days. And he went out and he did it. And so it's this idea of like, whatever you decide is possible becomes possible. And so the person that's sitting at home going, I can't do it. Well, guess what? You probably can't. But if you say, I can, I just need to figure out how, then it, it unlocks, you know, the possibilities and your unconscious mind will help you in the background, figure that shit out. Yeah. People yes, don't let it happen. It activates that reticular activation system to show you how you can. I mean, it's like oh. Henry Ford said, right? If you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right. <laughs> yeah. So, so in terms of obviously you're, you're, you're very busy, you have to factor in things like recovery to be able to be at your peak. And I know there's a lot of optimization strategies that you use. Um, do you have a love for what you do so much that it's almost as though if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life because actually you don't need to say, the, the classic nine to fiver who isn't a listener of this podcast, I don't believe, uh, is, is thinking, I just want to get home. It's very short term. Do you know what I mean? I want to sit in front of the TV and relax. Then I want to take however many holidays a year. I need to have my weekends off. It's very regimented. And actually, if you think about it, we have so much time. We're just not necessarily utilizing it. Are you somebody who is always doing? Do you actually schedule relaxation time? How, how do you run your calendar in that respect? So I usually, I mean, I, I absolutely love what I do. I, I come charging out of bed most mornings, just ready to, to get to whatever interesting thing I've got going on that, that day. Um, for me, what I found is uh, I need periodic short-term recovery. And that usually ranges anywhere from a day to maybe three days where um, from, but I don't schedule it um, because, you know, you're, I don't, 
I don't really know how long my flow states are going to last. And I want to ride them as, as far as I can. And so when I'm, when I'm going, I ride it as far as I can until I, I'm aware enough of my body to be like, okay, I need to go chill. And then I usually go lay on the couch for a day and watch TV or two days and watch TV. Um, there's a couple other things that I'm really, really focused on. Water, uh, I think, is one of the most important things that we mismanage. And it's not just the quantity of the water. It's the quality of the water. A lot of the bottled water that we have is is so filtered out that I mean, you ever pound uh, like a bottle of of you know bottled water, and at the end you're still thirsty. Mm. It's because they filter out a lot of the other things that our body's looking for when we're when we're hydrating. So I I'm really focused on on water. I every morning, second I get up, I take and I drink anywhere from thirty two to. 50 ounces of water with a lemon because the lemon helps your cells absorb it faster. And if I'm feeling extra dehydrated, I put a pinch of Himalayan salt in. Okay. Um, so, I mean, that, that's one aspect of, of kind of how I look at it. Are you filtering that with like a barky filter or are you, do you completely avoid plastic, presumably? So really what I want is I want deep well water because yeah. deep well water is going to have a lot of trace elements that because a lot of times when you're thirsty, it's not necessarily that you need water. You might need like potassium or sodium or something. And if you're drinking a regular bottle of water, they filtered that out. So um, there's a, a cool website called Find a Spring, I think. I think it's called Find a Spring. Yeah, we have where that they, here in Europe. What's that? We have that here in Europe as well. Uh, yeah, I think it's worldwide. Yeah. I know the guy that started it. He's this crazy rewild yourself dude from Maine. Um, <laughs> And uh, covered in like bear tattoos. It's <laughs> like a really interesting dude. Um, and so there's a spring by my house. Um, but it's about an hour drive. And I have these big glass bottles that I'll go down there and fill up. Um, and, and so that's what I try to do, but I, I'm not consistent with it. So in a pitch, I'll, I'll drink bottled water. I prefer it if it's in glass, but, you know, some waters, shitty water is better than no water, right? So I'm excited to share that I have finally found a greens powder that I like the taste of. It actually tastes amazing to drink. And not just that, it contains prebiotics, probiotics, naturally occurring enzymes that bolster your digestion and nutrient absorption for your microbiome. It contains your daily dose of vitamin C, zinc, healing mushrooms. It helps to boost energy with magnesium and is also packed with superfoods, adaptogens and antioxidants. And that is Athletic Greens. I absolutely love this drink and have been taking it now for a number of months every day. And so I was so excited to reach out to them. And they have said that listeners of this podcast can get a year's supply free of vitamin D and five free travel packs when you sign up to get Athletic Greens. It is so delicious. Honestly, you'll probably be moving from more than one shot a day to two. I absolutely love it. It's so amazing for my skin, my gut health, my energy, and everything else. So to claim your free year's supply of vitamin D and your five free travel travel packs with your order, go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Angela Foster. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Angela Foster. And enjoy. And I think, I 
think you're right. People do underestimate hydration and they underestimate the importance of minerals. And definitely what I find is actually pre-charging with minerals, particularly on something like endurance exercise, is going to help you go longer as well. Um, I find we, we're going to talk about wine in a minute. I also find like if you've had a bit of wine, you've had too much coffee, coffee depletes uh, minerals in the body. You know, actually waking up and just putting some minerals in uh, can make you feel completely different, especially if you're doing things like sauna as well, endurance exercise. Um, so when you, it's interesting what you say there, because I've been playing a lot and I believe we do need recovery cycles, right? So I think if, and, I, and I'm curious as to what you think here. So let's, th let's take the analogy of working out in a gym, right? The intensity will dictate the recovery that is required. Um, so if, for example, you are doing an endurance style repetition set, right? So you're working within 12, 15, 20 reps, that's gonna be a low weight, you're building muscular endurance. You can recover between that. And I think often people don't push hard enough because they don't recover enough, right? And, and, and this is the same true in life. So you would then need around 60 seconds, right? Maybe if you're dropping the reps down, you start to go heavier, looking 60 to 90 seconds. Once you start to really tax the neuromuscular system, by going very, very heavy, we're looking at two to four minute recovery. Otherwise, you're just not going to be able and the risk of injury becomes quite great when you're lifting, for example, your one rep max or something like that. And what I found when I've played with recovery in life in terms of my output and that flow state and, and having that creativity and that high energy really to bring to a situation is the harder you go at it, the longer the recovery will be needed and you're gonna have recovery at some time. But if you want sort of daily consistent output, you've got to build in intraday recovery cycles at the same time. Um, because otherwise you can end up, and, and I'm curious how you would manage this, if you don't schedule those recoveries, do you ever find that you're then called to a situation where the demand on you and your schedule is so great but your body's kind of forcing recovery before you can take that break in the calendar. I'm just curious how you manage that. Oh, I 100% agree that happens to me, you know, on an, on not an infrequent basis where I, I push a little too hard. My body lets me know, Hey man, you pushed a little too hard. Yeah. But I think with recovery, a couple things, number one, I think that recovery uh, is, is personalized. And so it depends on a lot of type, like which muscle fibers dominant in your body, what body type you have, you know, what, what sort of, um, uh, how long you've been doing something and, and, you know, is it new or is it routine? And, um, and I also think that you can, you can train for recovery as well. Um, and a good example for, of that is for me is sleep. Like I trained myself to run on five hours sleep. Okay. Um, and I can say, tell you how I did it, but, uh, that, that was a game changer. Uh, I just basically convinced my body that five hours was, was optimal. And, so let's, and let's, let's talk about that. Cause there was a really interesting study that I saw done in the 1980s and over a million people. And they couldn't actually aggregate that data because we didn't have the technology at the time. And when they look back, uh, and could finally assimilate that data, what they found, was that actually, you know, we often talk about seven to nine hours. The optimum yep. sleep was, was found to be six and a half hours. And the reason given for that was not actually because necessarily it was six and a half hours, but because these people that were sleeping the six and a half hours had no chronic diseases yet at all. They were very, very healthy. And obviously in that situation, when someone is optimized like yourself, the sleep need and the debt you accumulate when you don't have it is going to be less because you're not actually having to um, lower the inflammation constantly in the body, deal with the situation where the body's sort of fighting against itself because actually it's in a diseased state. I can see that that's less. 
but how have you trained yourself to be so optimized that you only need five hours? Because a lot of the literature I see starts to indicate health risks once you go sub sort of six. Yeah, so a couple ways. The first way was, and this was the one of the sort of larger shifts in my life, is I, I had gone through a, a pretty um, contentious divorce. And we ended up with um, shared custody of our three children who were young and they were in three different schools. And so I had a situation where uh, I was trying to you know, work at a big four consulting firm. And but every other week I would have my three kids that were in three different schools, three different homework requirements. So I, I would, the only way I could get anything done was I would have to get up at three o'clock in the morning, work until six then get the kids ready for school, take them to all the different schools, come home, work for two more hours, go back, pick everybody up, work for another hour or two, do homework, do dinners, do baths, then work for a few more hours and then go to bed at 11 or 12 o'clock. And that was, that was survival. And I was in survival mode for a number of years with that. And then of course the kids got older and they didn't need that level of attention. And all of a sudden I had capacity because I'm getting up at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, but I don't have all this, this kid stuff to do. So that was the, the first, um, I think, big thing that helped was just being forced. To, it's probably like if you're a soldier, you know, like and you're in war for five years and then you come out and like, you, you know, your sleep patterns are, you know, you sleep whenever and wherever you can. So that's the first thing. Then the second thing I did was I looked at, um, I studied a bunch of different sleep theory and, and the idea of, so here's a, here's a really good example. You ever go to sleep and right before you go to sleep, your body jerks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. That it's creepy when the person next to you is doing it also <laughs> spastically jerk. So what's going on is that neurologically, your brain is severing the, the connection between your brain and your, your muscular system. And the reason that it's doing that is because if you think you're running and you're asleep, you're going to go running. <laughs> And you can hurt yourself. So it's a survival mechanism. Your brain says, hey, when we go to sleep, um, you know, we, we, we do this, it cuts it. And then when you wake up, it sort of re-enables it. And it's like a computer reboot. So you have like uh, thoughts processing. Part of sleep is mental state. So what I found, and I experimented with this, is if I go to sleep for five minutes, and I set an alarm for five minutes, I go to sleep, I jerk, it resets it five minutes later, alarm goes off. I wake up, I'm refreshed because I've got a mental read. Uh -huh. So if the sleep issue is mental doing something, you don't need eight hours. You need five minutes. Now, if it's physical, your body needs to repair things and, and so on and so forth. So it, it, it kind of depends on what you do. So I get my five hours every night, probably once a week, I'll sleep seven to eight. Um, and then I will periodically do either a five minute reset or a 20 minute power nap. I probably do that twice a week. And I, I sort of be, become aware of where I'm at at any point in the day. I did it yesterday, for example. I went and slept and, and I, I took about a 30 minute power nap before I had some evening events. Today, I've, I feel great. Uh, I don't think I'm going to need to do that. So it's, it's a combination of having different tools in your, in your toolbox and then being self-aware enough to know when and where to apply which one, I think. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think napping is amazing. The other thing I'd use is um, 
as meditation for that for deep rest because i think with mapping effectively what you're doing is you're clearing adenosine in the brain right so as you're saying if, you, if yeah. it's not a physical need that you're recovering as soon as you clear some of that adenosine that that sleep pressure is removed to a degree um and i think can meditation you, is very deep rest as well have you worked with binaural beats at all yeah a little bit i like binaural beats when you put yeah 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 i think if you like stack those on top of meditation or that that is cool too i yes yeah, and all this is just—it's just tools in the toolbox, right? Like, hey, I'm going to go meditate for 20 minutes, or hey, I'm going to stack some binaural beats, or hey, I'm going to—you know—the yeah. more we have and the more aware we are, we can apply the best ones at any given moment. I think. Definitely. So, what's the little secret that we have in the foster household to the whole family getting a really good night's sleep every night? I definitely put it down primarily to blocking light in the evening, enhancing that melatonin production. So it's not just me, my husband, my three kids. We all love our blue light blocking glasses and put them on about two hours before bed. This has been transformational. If you have a child that doesn't sleep, honestly, you want to get a pair of blue light blocking glasses on them in the evening. We both wear them when I'm reading to my daughter in the evening and it's just so much easier to fall asleep. And let's face it, if we want good sleep as parents, we need our kids to sleep and my favorite glasses are those by red light rising because of the quality not all lenses block out enough of that blue light they have their day pro lenses that you can wear that block out 95 percent of blue light in the 400 to 450 nanometer spectrum which i often use in the afternoon but in the evenings what we're wearing a couple of hours before bed are their night pros and these lenses block 100 percent of all blue and green light in the 400 to 500 nanometer spectrum which is what clinical trials show to negatively disrupt melatonin production so you can still watch netflix you can still cuddle up to your kids read them a story and have a lamp on but just put those blue light blockers on because it will really enhance both theirs and your night's sleep and you can get 10 percent off any of their lenswear and also their red light therapy devices by heading over to redlightrising.co.uk and entering code Angela at checkout. That's redlightrising.co.uk and enter code Angela at checkout to get 10% off your order. Have you, so have you with your sleep, are you optimizing it around? I know you like me uh, into DNA testing. Are you optimizing it around your chronotype? So like, have you figured out presumably whether you're a night owl, an early morning person, and then are you, when you're not traveling, are you aligning with that? So I'm not, um, and, and the reason that I'm not is not because of any desire. It's because my schedule is too erratic to predict, um, you know, what I need to be doing. So like yesterday I had, you know, early morning conference calls with Asia plus a dinner in the evening. So like I didn't get home until nine o'clock at night. Now tonight I, I don't, so I'll probably go to bed a little bit earlier. Um, the other thing I do, we talked a little bit about this beforehand, is I got a, a, a cooling mat for my bed, um, and I, you know, set it to 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 map to my body cycle. So it cycles temperature during the night depending on what my body's doing, and that that was a that was a game changer. That's um, how how is it doing that? Is it what's it tracking as a metric to? Cycle. So what it does is it, it's two things. The mat itself has a number of sensors in it, um, and it senses things like um, uh, respiratory rate, um, HRV, pulse rate, but it also measures your temperature. 
And then there's a, a cooling coil, like a really thin um, coil that carries water through the mattress uh, or through the pad and it attaches to a chilling mechanism. And you can set it um, to, to whatever temperature you want. And then what it does is it's, it's a, it does two things. It adjusts based on your temperature. So if you're really hot in the middle of the night, it'll, it'll turn it down. And then it'll start to like warm up to wake you up. So it wakes you up more from uh, a temperature shift than from an alarm clock or whatever. It's kind of like a, the light version of, you know, the light clocks where the light comes in. It's like a temperature version of that. That's um, really interesting. Because actually your lowest body temperature, it's not an exact science, is it? It's around tw two hours before you're naturally going to wake up. You'll hit the right. lowest and then you start to rise. That's really, really interesting. What's the name of this map? I'm sure people listening in order. So I bought, so there's there's two. There's one that's called the Chili Pad um, that just sits on top of a mattress. I actually brought a mattress that came with the, the pad installed and that's called eight, like the number eight. Oh yeah, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. And what, what's, what's great about that is um, my girlfriend is, runs on a different temperature schedule than I do. Uh -huh. so I'm always hot. She's always freezing. Um, and so we can control the sides of the beds dramatically differently, um, which is, which is weird. Cause if sometimes in the middle of the night, I'll roll over and all of a sudden I'm super hot. I'm like, what the hell just happened? I'm like, Oh, I rolled onto the hot side of it. Get back on the cold side. Yeah. 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 That's very cool. Um, do you find it noisy? I mean, I think some people like, I don't know if it's got, but it's not. Okay. Cause I no, think it can be a bit noisy. Not that, uh, there's a, maybe there's a slight hum that you could hear if you focus really, really hard. The other thing that the eight mattress does is it has a feature that you can set an alarm. And when you want to wake up, the whole thing shakes like this. Wow. And man, the first morning we tried it, it was like an earthquake and we both jumped out of bed like, what the hell? And we haven't used it since. I'm not surprised, I'm not surprised, depending on where you live as well. It like, that could be quite scary. Yeah, um, I live in California, so you're sort of- Okay, yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember constantly. when I was, I remember driving around California, uh, like all over from kind of LA right up through, you know, uh, along the Big Sur coastline and just the number of times up to the wine country and Tahoe and the, the number of times there would be road closures. I didn't realize that you guys have these mini quakes like all the time. It would be like, oh, just another small earthquake. Cause when we were there, we were like, this is kind of freaking me out because in, in England that doesn't really happen. Let's just say that never really happens. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. So I've lived in Cal Southern California my entire life. And so we've had earthquakes my entire life. And and um, you kind of don't even really notice them unless they're sort of big. And I, in all the time I've lived here and all the earthquakes we've had, I, I've never had, I've never gotten hurt. I don't know anybody who's gotten hurt. I've never even broken anything in my house. It's, I think the the fear of it is is more um, pressing than, than the actual you know, earthquakes itself. And yes, every once in a while, there's an earthquake and 10 people die, but those happen once every 10 years. And yes, yeah, you know, there's 30 million people here. So the odds of it happening to you are pretty low. Fires, on the other hand, fires get interesting. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that actually on the news. You have quite a few of those as well. Um, but beautiful, beautiful state. Um, what about then talking about when you wake up? I mean, you're talking about cold there in terms of bed. 
Are you then also into cold showers? I know you're friendly with Andrew Huberman and I, I love his idea with cold showering of this concept of, of utilizing walls. So it's like how many walls can you climb? And obviously the first one is when you turn it to cold, you're climbing a wall and then how long can you stay and just optimizing around this. How much are you using cold exposure as a sort of primer, whether that's for metabolic health or for uh, resilience and, and you know just that mental predisposition for your day? Yeah, often I actually I got um, I ran a marathon down um, at the South Pole, um, actually a little bit north of the, the South Pole on the Union Glacier, deep in the middle of Antarctica. So being a California boy, that's when I, I got interested in, in sort of cold exposure. So I was trying to training for that. And then I realized there were all these other benefits. And I kind of went down the cryotherapy been for a while. I, I'm, I'm not convinced that that works as well as, as actual cold water immersion. The shower is great, but with the shower, uh, it's more of sort of a wake up and alertness thing as opposed to having any sort of real physiological benefits. Um, I, I'm sorry, uh, neurological benefits. It's because you're not at risk of death mm. in the shower and your brain knows it. Mm. So for me, like a cold plunge, I think is way more effective, uh, particularly if you get both your hands and your feet in because what'll happen is if you put your feet in, your brain kicks into panic mode. Hey, it's cold. You're going to die. Get out. But if you put both your hands and feet in, your brain goes, oh no, you're immersed. Panic. And you have to override that panic reflex kind of in the same way that deep, you know, free drivers have to override yes. it to yeah. get out. So what I do, I had um, a cold plunge at my old house um, that I would keep at about 40 degrees. And that, that's a good way to start the day. Go out and jump in that for four minutes. Today at my current house, I don't have that, but I have a pool that I don't heat. And depending on the season, it goes anywhere from 50 to 64, 65 degrees. So it's not quite as intense, but it's way easier to maintain. And it's always there. So I'll just run out rather than cold shower. I just run out and jump in the pool and yeah. go, you know, completely immerse and then try to see, you know, how long I can stay. And, and uh, you know, four or five minutes of that, I think is super super effective yeah super uh, more so than the shower definitely well the heat transfer from the body like there's nothing like it in terms of water right it's 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 like yeah, way you have, you have, yeah. You have pressure every part of your skin is touching right exactly and as you say like the the cold and the feet it's just for people like that don't have access to the cold pool and a lot of people here for example in england don't have access then i think the next best thing is the shower i i agree with you with the cryotherapy what i find a little bit strange is you're not getting the same thing because actually they deliberately put slippers and gloves on your um, hands and feet. So you're kind of, uh, it's kind of difficult to really get that cold. Do you know what I mean? You you feel it and you shiver. And I, I have noticed that it's still, you still get seemingly those metabolic benefits because afterwards it's actually taking quite a long time for you to bring your body temperature back. Uh, yeah. You don't get those mental benefits, I don't think. I, I think you get some, um, but not. it's not as it's not as significant. Like when you, when you stand in a cryotherapy chamber, you're like, okay, I'm prepared to be cold. If you go into a bathtub full of ice water and you submerge yourself completely, your brain is going to freak out and like scream at you to jump out of the tub. That doesn't happen in the cryotherapy thing. No, um, and right. so there's some physiological and neurological benefits, but I, I think you could get much more. I mean, hell in England, you could probably just go swimming in the ocean, right? 
Yeah, yeah, if you're near one or in a lake or a river, it's cold. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's still like cold in the mornings even now. I was thinking, you know, yesterday I could like, we're, we're recording this end of April. I was sitting outside in the garden. If you've got a sun trap, you know, in like my gym shorts and vest, but then in the morning it's, it's cold. Yeah, it's, yeah, definitely for sure. I mean, um, I think you could probably get similar ben benefits. I mean, I live in a place that it, doesn't really get that cold but i bet you know that's the wim hof stuff right just go out and sit in the snow you know in your shorts i i've never really played around with that but there's probably some some similar types of benefits from that too i would guess yeah i guess i think we don't um we don't have enough snow here that's the thing it kind of gets cold but not that cold um so so moving from there, you've kind of, you've optimized your sleep. Obviously, I know you track your HRV as well. Uh, and that actually, that mattress, the eight, is tracking your HRV. Yep. What are you finding with your output? I mean, a lot of the endurance racing and things that you do um, often will lead to a higher HRV, but then all the traveling and things. Are you using that as a metric for when you might need those recovery days? How much are you paying attention? And what have you found to increase HRV most effectively? Yeah, so um, for me, it's more a question of, of understanding from a data perspective what's going on with me. I, I feel like I am in, I'm reasonably self-aware of how I'm feeling and where stuff hurts and where it doesn't hurt, my energy levels and so on and so forth. And so what, I'll, what I'm more likely to do is see if that's correlating with my HRV data. Like, oh, I feel great, but my HRV is really, really low. Huh, what, what happened? And then I, I can sort of do some analytics and say like, all right, what, what, what did I do different yesterday? You know, did I, did I drink more wine than I should have? Or did I, you know, um, run more than I should have? Or did I not hydrate in the morning? And I, and I try to correlate it back. So it isn't that I'm trying to shoot for a specific HRV um, number. It's that I'm trying to, to use it as, as a bit of a speedometer for my life and make sure that my brain's in sync with the data. Okay. Cause I think, you know, we all make assumptions, right? I'm like, Oh, I feel great. I'm like, no, you have cancer. Um, you know, so yeah. you know, having other metrics to help make sure you're, you're on the right path um, is good. I think. Yeah, so that's I, I think so. Especially for a sort of a type A personality. Cause as you say, you can just push, push, push otherwise. Um, well, and the other thing we didn't talk about with respect to HRV is there's a lot of different monitors. I also don't know how accurate some of them are. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's risk in using data to, to then go and take specific actions when in fact that data could be wrong. Yeah. Um, and so that's another thing I think that's important to, to know. I, I was using one sensor that I, I knew was not working right and it. It's interesting you say that because I, I, for a year, actually wore the Whoop and the Aura to compare the data. And mm -hmm. what I found was they were quite different uh, on sleep, but on HRV, they were almost identical. Um, however, oh, interesting. Uh, on a sleep score basis, Whoop would hammer me really hard for drinking wine. Um, okay. Whereas Aura wasn't really picking that up. And then I put a chest strap on, so an H10, just a simple Polar H10, and coupled that yeah. with the Elite HRV app just to see, well, what can I do and how can I like change that HRV in real time uh, with different breathwork techniques. And I found that actually once the chest strap was on, 
my HRV, and I naturally don't have a really high HRV, was higher on the chest strap reading than on either the WHOOP or on the Aura. So there was a bit of a difference, but Aura and WHOOP were correlating sleep-wise. Yeah, so now you have two, two things that are kind of the same, but they're different than the chest strap, like which one's the most accurate and which, you know. So I think that's the risk of getting too too focused. And the quantifiable self guys and the biohackers, I, I do think get almost um, dogmatic about the data. And I'm sort of like, well, you know, is the data right? Mm. <laughs> let's let's yeah, start yeah, with yeah. that. And I think, I think, as you say, we're not there. I mean, I remember going to see Matthew Walker in London, who wrote Why We Sleep, and speaking to him about the accuracy at the time, this is about three years ago, of the um, aura ring, he was wearing one, compared to lab data that he would see. And he was like, it's about 60% accurate, or it was then, before. Obviously, there's been reiterations. But the benefit yeah. is that you are doing it against yourself, right? So it's not like I'm trying to compare my data with yours, which would be even right. more like, yeah, inaccurate. Um, so there were benefits that he saw. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. And I think you do have to go with how you feel. And I also think, I don't know if you found this, actually the mindset that you have and the disposition that you have when you wake up and how you reinforce a positive mindset is probably one of the biggest things that I've found in terms of the need for recovery, as opposed to the physical need for, for recovery. Um, because you, you can talk yourself in or out of how you feel quite effectively. Well, so one, one trick that I use, and I stole this from Huberman, um, was the effect of light on, on kind of neurology. And so uh, one of the things I try to do every single morning, the second I wake up, I go and I stare at the sunrise for five minutes. And what happens is that's, that's directly true. at the sun as it's rising. No, no, no. Well, you, you, I mean, you stare at the yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> but you, you basically you you let your eyes take in morning sunlight for a period of about five minutes, and that that has a whole series of kind of neurological impacts that um, go back to like tribal living days where the sun would come up, and then then it was time to go hunt because you only had limited sun hours. Um, so you're you're sort of triggering these old um, uh, reflexes in your brain to help you wake up. And I found that that, that simple thing, I wake up, I go downstairs. Some mornings I jump in the pool, I get out, I get coffee and I look at up, just look at the sky and drink my coffee. And then let's go. You're optimized. And what about workouts then? When are you doing your workout? Cause I always think I, I love, um, Tony Robbins has this, this sort of three part stat, which I really like, which is state story strategy, right? Because if you haven't got in the right state, you're going to give yourself a bit more of a disempowering story, which is then going to inform the strategy for whatever you're going to do that day. And so for me, like movement and meditation are probably the two biggest ones, in addition to light that I've found. What have you found in terms of creating that state? A cold exposure obviously works, like the pool, diving in, the caffeine. When are you doing your exercise? So that is a function of um, am I training for some sort of stupid activity? And if so, then that activity is going to dictate. It's like when I was training for a marathon in the Himalayas, I was doing like high altitude uh, simulation with like, I have this oxygen, this container that you strap onto your body and it strips the oxygen from the air and, and doing like short runs, but breathing through that, as opposed to if I'm trying to do a longer run, I'd maybe out running 20 miles or something on a weekend. Um, versus uh oh i'm i'm i feel like i'm a little heavy and i need to drop some weight so i'm gonna go do more cardio or hit so it, so part of it is a function of where am i at and and are there specific objectives i'm trying to hit 
So that'll dictate the type of exercise and the duration. Um, in terms of when, it's truly a function of my schedule. Some mornings I'm out of bed and, and I'm immediately on, you know, Zoom calls with Asia. And some mornings I have, um, you know, my whole morning is open and I can can go do stuff like go mountain biking or whatever. So the, this perfect example is this week, um, I noticed that last week I did not do enough physical stuff and I'm very stiff as you you know, we sit around on Zooms. And so this week, I my goal is to do stretch every day. So I went to stretch lab on Monday and I had them do like an hour, you know, active stretching on me. Yesterday, first thing I, I did when I woke up in the morning was I did a 30 minute stretch session over on my mirror. Um, I have a mirror device. And then I did the same thing again this morning. So my plan is to, this week is going to be a stretching week. <laughs> and, and my goal is to do it more. But yeah. So it's, uh, I, I do not have the, the, the benefit of a, of a set schedule that would allow me to say, I'm going to always train at this time. I'm trying to fit stuff in when and where I can. Yeah. As and when you can. Um, and do you do anything else in the morning? Like, do you meditate? Do you journal? Do you do anything else? I don't journal. Um, I do a lot of meditation. Sometimes I do it in the morning. Sometimes I do it in the afternoon. You know, it's the old adage, you know, you meditate twice every day for 20 minutes unless you don't have time and, and then meditate for an hour. Yeah. Um, uh, so I try to fit it in if and when I can. I be, I've become, I think, quite adept at rapidly getting myself into that trance state um, of meditation. So, you know, some, sometimes, especially beginners, it takes them a while. Like they just sit there for 20 minutes and they're trying to not think of things. Um, for me, I, I can get down into it pretty quickly. So I can grab five minutes and that's great. And boy, five twenty, oh, that's awesome too. But totally a function of that day's schedule. Yeah. It's interesting actually the whole meditation thing. What I found is is when you first start meditating, a lot of people think, Oh, I've got to keep the mind quiet, which you don't. And then um they're sort of struggling with it. If you get past that and then you are able to drop those brain waves down and get into that state, you quickly get to a sort of euphoric almost feeling. Um, and then the brain sort of almost becomes used to it. And I think that's where a lot of people give up because then they're like, Oh, do you know what? I'm not really enjoying my meditations anymore. They're not quite the same because you're always trying to recreate that thing that you got, it's a bit like that first cup of coffee, nothing beats it, right? You can't match it. And I think then people try to recreate that experience and they can't. And if you only push beyond that and make it like a daily or at least every, you know, a few times a week practice, you will then develop, as you say, that ability to drop into that state more quickly and, and hit that groove. But it's just a case of, of of moving along with it. I don't know if you found that. That's that's been my well, I, so I, I totally think that, and I would layer on top of that the, that um, different meditation techniques resonate and land differently with different people. Like transcendental, like I tried transcendental. I think it's bullshit. It didn't work for me. But some people swear by it. You know, um, if you look at like the Shaolin monks, they tie it to movement of the body. Mm. Um, other people, you know like prefer guided meditations and, and, or, you know, chimes and, and, and Tibetan bowls and whatnot. And so I think it's a function of figuring out which, which technique is most effective for you. And that took me a while. I actually used, um, do you know the app insight timer? Yes. Yeah. I've used yeah. It. So I used kind of insight timer to experiment with a whole bunch of different approaches to meditation before I sort of dialed in on what worked for me. 
Um, and it's very different than what works for my girlfriend. Um, you know, she prefers a, a very different approach. That's fine. Like it's, it works for her. Great. So I don't, I'm not dogmatic about, Hey, you should, you should do it this way. It's like, Hey, figure out, we're all individuals, figure yes. out what's yeah. optimal for you. And that's not going to be the same as the next guy. No. And I think there's sex differences. I remember having this conversation when I interviewed John Gray from, you know, men are from Mars or from Venus. Yeah. And he'd really explored like the difference between guided for meditations, doing things like Vedic or, tra or transcendental style and how they, which one embraces sort of the masculine side. People can go back and listen to that episode. It's really, really interesting uh, and how it does that. But I think you're right. There is There are sex differences, but also like finding the right one for you. Um, I want to make sure that we talk about wine because you are not yet a master, but soon to be a master of wines, right? Yeah. So very, very- From Your lips to God's ears. Mm, very, very knowledgeable in wine, which is a big love of mine. I I, uh, I remember having, I still look back at the photos from like 20 years ago, I think, when my husband and I were newly married, just taking like a bike. Actually, when we landed, this is quite a funny story. When we landed in California, we woke, we uh, arrived in San Francisco, very jet lagged, woke up ridiculously early, like 3.30 in the morning and decided we'll drive up to the wine country now. Arrived there, quite cold it was in the morning in San Fran. Uh, hired some bicycles and decided to ride around the vineyards. Oh my God, by the middle of the day, <laughs> I was so hot. I remember buying a t-shirt from one of them, but I was in these jeans. So the next day we were like, right, how can we do this differently, right? I'm sore, I ache, I'm super dehydrated. So I think we hired a limousine to take us round. Obviously led to a lot more wine drinking the second day, uh, but it was pretty amazing. Um, so it was fun, but it's beautiful. I remember, um, I'm trying to remember the name, Mount, what was it? And we bought some wines from there. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, so in terms of wine, let's, let's be a bit controversial to start with, because you and I chatting before the show of this, this concept. It's not really, it's just about landing in the UK. Oh, I must buy things like dry farm wines. We have access here to very small local wineries, producers, even in English, uh, England's producing wine now, um, but in France and Austria and things like this. Uh, that haven't got loads of chemicals, you know, are really prepared with love. They're still kind of hand harvested. Can you tell us, just let's start high level again before we get into any grapes. What do we need to be looking for if we want to stay healthy and optimize and look after our brains and bodies in terms of wine? And well, so let, let, me, let me dispel some myths. Yeah, let's um, do that. And I think one of the first myths is alcohol level. There's a trend towards lower alcohol levels. Yes. And um, here's the issue. The, the level of alcohol in wine is a pure, purely a function of how much sugar is in the grape when you pick it. The more sugar, the more alcohol. What you want to do is you want to pick the grape when the grape is at perfect phenolic ripeness when all of the, the flavors of the grape are completely balanced. And you've had this, I'm sure, where if you eat an apple too early, it's really tart. Or if you eat it too late and it's really, it's overly sweet, it's just not enjoyable. Yes. But if you get it right at that perfect time, everything's in balance, the sweetness, the tartness, the skin, that's how you want to pick grapes. And then the, al the alcohol is going to be whatever the alcohol is for that plot of ground that year in that location and that climate. So is it is it is there any truth then that as we've had the climate's kind of heating up because there definitely seems to be this perception that wines are now getting higher in alcohol than they were and and that's one of the marketing ploys between these sort of 
dry farmed organic wine companies is all that we have lower alcohol. But it sounds like what you're saying there is, yes, the, the temperature is playing a part, but it's actually down to the variety of that grape. It will have a perfect ripeness, which if it's picked at the peak, will then dictate the alcohol content as well. Correct. And then the wine is going to be as good as the wine could be from that vineyard that year. What happens now is you see people who are picking too early so that their alcohol levels are lower, but then you're eating the underripe apple. And so, sure. There's less alcohol in it, but it doesn't taste good. And it doesn't give you as, as great of a, of a, a wine drinking experience. So the, the alcohol things, I think if, if you are interested in drinking lower alcohol wines, which is fine if you are, there are places to get wine from that are naturally lower in alcohol, like the Mosul River in Germany where they make the world's best Rieslings there and both dry styles and sweet styles. And the highest alcohol you're going to see is 9%. But those grapes are perfectly ripe at 9% alcohol, as opposed to Spain, the hot part of Spain, where like if you're in Ribeiro del Duero, those grapes are perfectly ripe when alcohol is 15%. I want to drink the best possible wine. So I'm going to try to find, you know, places that, pick the grapes at the right time. Um, and the alcohol is going to be what it's going to be. But if you're a consumer that's interested, drink more Riesling, you know, for example, yeah. drink more, drink more Muscadet from the Loire, drink more Cabernet Franc from Chinon. Those are going to be 12 and a half percent. Great. You don't have to build this whole marketing narrative around our wines are less than 12%. So therefore they're good for you. A, that's bullshit. And B, um, what it probably means is the ones you're going to taste is good. Mm. So that's myth one. Here's myth two. And this one drives me crazy. Sulfite. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about sulfites because this is, this is controversial. I do have a bit of opinion on this. So yeah, go on. So sulfites, sulfur is an antioxidant. You could just as easily say that adding sulfur to wine, it's got added antioxidants. You could build a whole marketing narrative around that. People, people have decided that sulfites are bad for you and sulfites cause headaches and you're allergic to sulfites. None of that is true. Scientifically, the data doesn't support any of that. Here's what's going on. Sulfur prevents oxygen from getting to your wine. When you get oxygen in your wine, it will spoil your wine. It will allow harmful uh, microorganisms to evolve. It will allow nasty flavors to develop. You put a little bit of sulfur in there to control it and make sure that the wine's not bad. Um, your body naturally produces about 100 parts per million of sulfites every day. And we use sulfites in almost every food production in every supermarket. Like if you walk in, you're, there's apples, there's bananas, there's, there's sulfites because you're trying to keep the oxygen. You know, you cut a banana in half, you leave it on the counter, it's brown. Well, if, you, if, yeah, if you don't add sulfites to, you can get them, like, for example, an apricot. If there's no sulfites, it, when you dry an apricot, it won't stay orange. It will go to a brown color because of right. that oxidative effect. But hang on. because <laughs> So you're saying sulfites and sulfur is the same thing? Yes. Right. Sulfites, sulfites are a byproduct of basically adding sulfur to wine. You, okay. you end up with sulfites. In. Okay. So... Why would you explain then there are certain wines that bring on my asthma? So I had pneumonia a few years back, mm -hmm. infection-induced asthma, I was hospitalized with it. Now I struggle with asthma because of the damage caused to the lungs. There are certain wines 
And I was looking at that. And if you look at some of the research, it will suggest that sulfites can trigger asthma uh, in people that are susceptible. So if I had to hazard a guess, um, it is highly likely that you are allergic to tannins rather than sulfites. Okay. And so do you notice that more with red wines well, than white wines? Yes. Now, the, here's the interesting thing. I do. And, and that's why I was curious to see, because if it is a big red wine, and I personally, actually, it's almost like my body will alert me if there is a wine that is highly tannic, I actually really enjoy it as much. I am more likely to then develop a headache and also mm -hmm. have asthma the next day. Yeah, Not immediately, so slightly delayed reaction. So you think about the purpose of tannins in nature is to keep animals from eating plants. <laughs> like plants develop tannins, so they're bitter, and so the animals won't eat them, and they can grow and reproduce. And so um, it, it is something that it, tannins and wine are great. They add structure, but some people are much more sensitive to those. Sulfites, if you were allergic to sulfites, you would be allergic to your body naturally producing 100 parts per million of sulfites every single day. Like you have asthma every single day. Your body naturally produces. Um, and in wine, at least, I don't know about the EU, but in America, you're required to label if the wine bottle has more than 20 parts per million. So like, let's say a normal bottle of wine might have 40. So it's got the label on it. But if you drank that whole bottle, it would still be, you know, only 40% of what your body's naturally producing. Like scientifically, it doesn't make sense. What does make sense though, is the protection of the wine. And so think about like pasteurized milk versus unpasteurized milk. One could argue unpasteurized milk is healthier in some ways, but you're way more likely to get sick. Mm -hmm. Natural wines versus protected wines, you're way more likely to get sick. The way that you don't is if you have a very, very careful winemaker who makes the wine in a natural method, but very carefully, and you end up with a wine that is balanced, it's harmonious, and it's pure and it's clean. But what most people do, I would say 80% of the natural wine that's out there are people trying to market that it's natural. And they're not really putting that level of care into it. And I, I can always tell if the wine label says natural wine on the label, I go, that guy's marketing it. And the people that are doing it because they believe in it and they love it and they're doing it right, they don't put it on the bottom. That's just how they make their wine. Yeah, it's like a lot of the like small vineyards in France, you know, they haven't necessarily got the budget to go and get certification for organic, but then neither are they adding a whole bunch of pesticides and things on top. But, yeah. you know, yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I think... Yeah, like Yvon Metra is a, is a guy in Beaujolais who's making like some of the very best Beaujolais that I've ever had in my life. And um, his wines are all natural um, and he's a big advocate of it. And, but... Nowhere in any of his materials would you ever hear him refer to it as natural. And it's just why. Yeah, it's just why. The flip side is some of these clickbait companies are like, if you're not drinking natural wines, you know, you're not taking care of your body. And then you try the wine and it looks like kombucha and it smells like crap and it tastes like shit. And you're like, well, at least I'm healthy, but you don't have an enjoyable experience. And I would argue you actually are less healthy because you're probably putting some bad microbes in you. Yeah, you were probably putting some mycotoxins and stuff in as well, right? But potentially, yeah, because if you're not filtering, um, you know, the filters are meant to keep out the bacteria and everything else that can creep in uh, in, a, in a winery, which there's all kinds of bad stuff that can creep in um, unless you're super, super careful. And this is where the super careful guys shine.
But the other guys are just making natural wine. You know, think about your cost for production too. You want to make natural wine, go out and pick some grapes, throw it in a bucket in your garage, come back in a month, strain out the big chunks and put it in a bottle. Boom, natural wine. And now you can market it as healthy. As opposed to trying to make clean, safe wine, you've got to filter it, you've got to manage the temperature of it, you've got to do all this stuff. It takes a lot longer, it costs a lot more. Um, and so now we've got this perceived price, you know, margin enhancement, if you could put the word natural on the bottle. And so people do it. And I, it's, it drives me crazy. And what are the other things that people can put into wine? So let's compare, because I think this is also obviously granted when you are drinking alcohol, right? The liver is making acetaldehyde, which is damaging. It's got to be detoxified. So there is that in its own right that can, you know, increase things of risk of, of cancer and possibly like breast cancer and things in women if you're having too much. But what is what what's interesting to me is no one's ever done the research to look at or that I've seen. Let's take a seven pounds or seven dollar bottle of plonk, if you like, from a supermarket compared to a really well produced wine uh, and, and the chemicals that go into the cheap bottle of wine potentially versus the and the amount of sugar that goes into the expensive bottle of wine that's been produced with love and care that presumably is having quite a big difference in that individual's body. Uh, it's a bit like drinking a food with a ton of colors and artificial sweeteners and sugars and all these things in versus water from the well. Yeah, so there are there are definitely a number of additives that you can put into one. And, um, you know, the there's, you know, there's one clickbait company in particular that will market, oh, there's 70 different chemicals that you can add to wine legally in the United States. And, the first thing we have to realize is there are, but that doesn't mean that people put all 70 in. I'll, but I'll give you a good example. So potassium metabisulfate is, sounds, sounds scary, right? When you, when you are making wine, you put yeast into the wine or you let the ambient yeast get into the wine and the yeast starts to eat the sugar that's there and it poops out alcohol uh, until either the yeast eat all the sugar and then there's no more food, so they die. Uh, or the alcohol gets too high for the yeast to live and it kills the yeast. That's that's how fermentation works. Sometimes, for whatever reason, the fermentation gets stuck and there's still sugar in the wine, but the yeast aren't powerful enough or mobile enough to eat the rest of it. If you dump potassium metabisulfite into the wine, it reactivates the yeast and then they can finish the fermentation. So you would say, oh, no, there's... You put chemicals into the wine. Well, you did, but you did it for a purpose to make the wine better. Um, and then we're going to filter it out because we're running everything through a filter. So anything that was in the wine, we're straining out anyway. Um, so the odds of, of something harmful still being in there are low. That said, there are definitely some things like mega purple. Mega purple is a great based dye, essentially, that makes your wine dark. Um, and I don't know that that's great for you i also don't it's great based so i don't really know that it hurts it either but it sounds sort of dangerous and there's other things that you can add um to to potentially you know punch up certain aspects of the wine like for example if the wine doesn't have enough acid you could dump ascorbic acid in. it brings the acid up a little bit now it's a little bit more imbalanced the wine is going to taste better Am I advocating that you should go out and start dumping a bunch of ascorbic acid into your body? No. But in that situation, 
it's the right thing to do to create a pleasant experience. It's not going to hurt you. I mean, we have a, a sort of gas. Right? Anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we put it in Gatorade, right? It's like one of the big ingredients <laughs> in Gatorade. So if you drink Gatorade, you know, um, but there, it's easy to build a narrative around this for marketing purposes. And, um, and I understand it. And that's how capitalism works. And I would say that the majority of people who then try it have, have an experience like the one you were talking about before, where you try the wine, you're like, this wine's not good. No, 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 no. I absolutely had that. I was like, why would I drink this? Because the, for, for me, the whole pleasure of drinking wine is the taste and the flavor and the enjoyment and the love and the kind of chats that I have with friends or family when I'm doing it. The side effect is the effect of alcohol on my brain. And actually, because I'm a bit of a lightweight and I can't drink very much, it inhibits me from drinking very much at all uh, when I'm having it. And that's slightly disappointment because the flavor and the taste and the experience would take me beyond where I would feel comfortable drinking, if that makes sense. So I, because I think I'm drinking for pleasure of what I'm enjoying, as opposed to for the purposes of getting drunk, which I think is a completely different experience if someone wants to do that. And I, most people that drink wine are not, you know, the, the alcoholics, like uh, vodka is way faster, right? Wine is about sharing and community and, and this, the experience that, that you're having, even if you're by yourself, potentially, you know, I had, I was in Rome last week, the week before maybe, and I, I didn't have any people with me, but I stopped at a cafe for lunch and I had a plate of uh, prosciutto and um, uh, had the soft cheese and... Um, mascarpone or burrata? No, not mascarpone. It's not mozzarella. It's the one at Ricotta. Burrata. Oh, oh okay. Um, and, uh, and, and, a, and a little pizza and I had a little bottle of cheap Italian wine. I sat out on this cobblestone street in Rome and I'm eating it. And it was awesome. Yeah, gorgeous. it was just amazing. Beautiful day, right? Of course. How great is that? It is. But I think think about like um, artisan bread. I am sure that you've had like fresh baked artisanal bread that's been spectacular, way better than store bought. But you've probably also had artisanal bread that was baked wrong and it was doughy and it was shitty. And you're like, God, I wish I'd gotten the store bought better. At least it would have been consistent. That's sort of the natural wine equivalent. Um, you're making artisanal wine. You can make it great, but you can make it bad. Right now, 10% of it's good, 90% of it's bad, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think this is the thing, right? You want to enjoy these things. I'm definitely, you know, I think you can you can, you can, can go down this road where you're like, right, I, I don't drink coffee, coffee, but actually, hey, it's full of antioxidants, so why aren't you drinking coffee? I don't drink, I don't eat bread because I don't want any gluten, but actually, well, that artisan bread, that sourdough, uh, it's so tasty. It's so good. And actually it might be there's some helpful stuff potentially for a gut microbiome. I'm not advocating that we all go out and get develop leaky gut because we're overdoing gluten. But I think you can become too hard in this and then mm -hmm. you become kind of, um, what's the word, orthorexic with it. And similarly with wine, if you look at it and you look at the evidence-based stuff from like the Mediterranean diet, there's the resveratrol in wine, this is the thing, it interacts with the food. And I think people often don't appreciate this. So for example, there are a group of compounds called sirtuin enhancing compounds, right? Which activate your metabolism and your longevity genes. We want to have more of these. So we know that like white wine, for example, contains quercetin that is also contained in onions. However, if you are having uh, like a, a Italian dish, 
that has like lycopene from the tomatoes, has uh, quercetin from the onions. The resveratrol in that red wine increases the absorption and the piacetinol that you get in the red wine of the quercetin. And these are complementary and there are health benefits. And so I, I personally take the view that these things are amazing. It's like dark chocolate. They're there to be enjoyed in moderation uh, in company well, I, of good breath family. I assume you're familiar with the Blue Zone diet? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and they mostly know, drink in almost every Blue Zone. Yeah, well, I mean, of the five, like one of the Seventh-day Adventist colony at Loma Linda, I don't think they drink. But where the whole Blue Zone thing started was in Olianas in Sardinia, which is where the researchers yeah. kind of looked around and was like, God, there's a lot of old people. And Olianas um, makes a version of Cannonau, which is the Italian word for Grenache. But because it's grown on an island, the skins are like twice as thick because of the sunlight. So the, the resveratrol quantities are like double what you would see in normal wines and they believe that that, that blue zone uh is really a hundred percent intrinsically linked to the the resveratrol in the can and that's what then spawned the research to find the other ones so all of that comes back to those guys are living longer because they drank wine all the time yeah, so that that's yeah, a pretty good argument for the health benefits in my opinion Definitely. But effectively, like there, what you're talking about as well is it's the hormetic stress, right, that the plant goes under. So like in France, for example, they don't use tons of irrigation in like places like Sardinia and things. So the vine itself is having to fight for survival. It's creating more of those hormetic compounds like resveratrol, which then is in turn passing on to us. A little bit like we were saying, cold exposure benefits the body, right? So hormetic stress makes you stronger. It's about that resilience. Uh, so yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, as long as you're not going out and getting drunk every night uh, a little bit in moderation is probably a good thing um you have wine because you you actually are a wine producer this is a very high-end wine i'm excited to hear about this and where can we where can we buy your wine well so you can't um I, in the for, UK, for, 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 well you can't for a couple of reasons one uh so i started the wine industry in the kingdom of bhutan which is in the himalayas kind of yes. between tibet and Nepal. it's fairly exclusive uh, to get into the country to begin with. And then I am, you know, the, the guy who's making wine, the only person who's making wine there. We planted vineyards. We started planting vineyards about five years ago, and it takes a vineyard four to five years to start producing um, fruit. And so we started producing fruit last year, but there was a pandemic and the country was locked down. So we couldn't harvest it and produce wine. So while I have a winery and a bunch of vineyards there, I have not actually produced wine yet. We are contemplating making the first vintage this year, but we may not make it until next year. And that uh, would just be for locals, will it? Or No, no, no. This will be 100% for the export market. I think, so think about this. Like if you had the first bottle of wine ever produced in France, like that'd be in a museum. First bottle of wine ever produced in the US, that'd be in the Smithsonian. We're about to make the first bottle of wine ever produced in a country. And I believe the last time that happened was in New Zealand in the 1800s. It's it's a monumental thing that will only happen once for a country. And there's not that many countries left in the world that can grow wine that do. Uh, How is it going? How is it going in terms of the it's going? It's going great. I mean, we're learning a lot because this hasn't been done before. But I think um, to your point, so so the, what we're doing with the first vintage, we're going to do first barrel. So there'll be 300 bottles from the first barrel to produce. Those will probably auction off at, you know, 10 grand a piece because it's a piece of history. And then the first harvest, those bottles will likely be 
probably reasonably expensive just because it's the, from the first year, which is kind of an interesting thing. I think then the you know the following seasons will will go back, uh, you know, will revert down to lower pricing. My guess is though that the pricing will be between 100 and 300 bucks a bottle um, on the global markets. Um, kind of depends. We also don't know that we don't know the quality of like, I think it's going to be good, but it's yeah. never been done before. Yeah, so. that's the thing, isn't it? You don't know. You don't know yet. Somebody could be buying a $10,000 bottle uh, and being a, a piece plunk. of history. <laughs> <laughs> it could be the first bottle of Blanc ever. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the most it's expensive. Very, it's a very for, uh, for wealthy individuals, um, but fun. And uh, the other thing you have, because uh, I know this is, and, and I'm excited, I'm actually going to be reading this, you have a great book for people who want to start to understand wine and understand the different grape varieties, drinking and knowing things, uh, which just, can you briefly talk about that? Because it started, it was one of these things just went viral, right? By accident, it started as something you were doing for friends. Yeah, I started writing emails to my friends about um, wines I think they should try. And um, they forwarded to them, their friends and they forwarded to their friends. And then I was getting emails from people all around the world saying, hey, can you put me on the list? And um, and so I, I finally ended up setting up a website so that people can self, you know, direct. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to buy the book. If you want to, you could just go to drinkingandknowingthings.com and put in your email address and you'll just start getting every single one of them once a week from the beginning oh. with the idea you five minutes, you read about a wine, you'll probably laugh your head off. It's, it's a very um, like informal approach to wine. And then I recommend trying a wine and you go try it. If you like it, cool. If you don't, don't worry about it. Next week, there'll be a different one to try with the idea that if people did this for, you know, a few months, they become not intimidated. They become confident. They become knowledgeable. And it's funny. I get, I get emails and, and texts and direct messages and stuff from people all around the world that like someone's in a, in a restaurant there, they'll send me a picture of the wine list. And they're like, I'm doing it. I can understand this. This is amazing. And I'm like, awesome. And, but without any real effort, yeah. you don't have to take classes. You don't have to read dry textbooks, five minutes, drink something, see if you like it. But if you want to buy the book, there's actually two volumes out now, volume one, volume two, um, you can get them on Amazon. We were the best selling wine book in Germany for a while. I don't think we are anymore. Yeah. Very cool. Very best cool. In, uh, let me rephrase that. Best selling wine book in English in Germany. There's probably a German wine book that was yeah. better, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And I, my goal, I think around the, around the world and particularly in America, people are so intimidated by wine that it takes away the joy of being able to just have a bottle of wine with your friends and your family and have that experience. And so my, I want to change that. I want to bring the fun back to it, the joy. And, and there's no money in it for me. I'm not doing it for any reason other than just a pure passion and a belief that wine is special and we should all drink more of it. It is. Get out special. of your head about I it. I think it's like it. art. I think it's like art. I really do. I think so too. Yeah. I really, I'm, I'm the same with you. And I think it's a shared experience uniquely in a way that other alcohol, maybe for guys having a beer, and I'm not being sexist here at all, actually. I just know that more men drink beer than women, maybe, uh, from what I've seen. Um, and I think that it is a very 
shared experience. And that's what you see in the blue zones. And actually, when you look at the thread of why they live longer, it was that sense of community and relationship and, uh, and time together that really held as the common thread across them all, wasn't it? So I'm a huge supporter. And I think it slows you down when you're eating. It enhances digestion. It enhances the bioavailability. It has its benefits. Just moderation. Um, I'm going to ask you then, what is, because uh, we're coming to the end, I have a few quick fire questions, if yeah. that's okay, with your permission. Okay, yeah. so what is your favorite, and I'm going to be busy making notes here, they can go in the show notes. Uh, what is your favorite, you're going to go dollars, I'm going to go pounds, so 15 pound bottle of wine. Um, so I think uh, Vermentino from Sardinia, um, particularly Vermentino di Galura, um, is I actually hosted a dinner, uh, a couple months ago at a wine convention where I, I broke out about 10 or 12 different wines and the Vermentino di Galera was everybody's favorite. And it was by far the cheapest of all the other ones, really? but I didn't tell anybody what the prices were. I was just like, here, try these, yeah. um, on the red side, I would put Cannonau also from Sardinia. I'm which one? Sardinia is doing, um, it's called Cannonau, C-A-N-N-O-N-A-U, Cannonau. Um, I've had this, I've had this, yes. Yeah, that's yeah. For, for 15 bucks or 15 pounds. You can yeah, get amazing examples of that. Um, I might also add in um, maybe, um, the prices are creeping up on this, but Menthea from Spain, M-E-N-C-I-A, is another just the delicious, very, very similar to a Pinot Noir, that the price points are going to be probably in that range. Although they people are figuring out that wine. I probably shouldn't have said anything on your podcast. They're going to drive up global demand for <laughs> it. Yeah, the price is going to go up. You're ruining it for everybody. What about so let's some... move up then? So now we're going like 50 pounds. So we're going to have a relatively special bottle of wine. Ooh, 50 pounds. Um, I have to convert that into dollars. So that's about 75 bucks. Uh, so I would say um, I would get probably a Premier Cru Burgundy, but from a lesser known village, uh, maybe like a Montfili or a Fichon. So in Burgundy, the Grand Cru vineyards are super, super expensive. The Premier Cru vineyards can range from 50 bucks to a thousand bucks. And there's not really differences except which vineyard it comes from. So I like going to the ones that people don't know about and pay in the 50, 60 bucks and getting something that's equivalent quality to the $400 one that's from the next village over, but everybody knows. Uh, yeah, yeah, agreed. Uh, so we do this. So, yeah, it's really, really good. Um, definitely. Um, you, if you want a white for, for that same price point, I would do. Um, I mean, I am such a fan of Vin John from the Jura region of France. Um, this is not a wine that's for everyone. It's very savory, very savory white wine, but it's one of my favorite wines of all time. Um, and it pairs amazingly well with food. And for 75 bucks, you could get a spectacular Vin John. Amazing. We'll link to these in the show notes. And what's the, what's the, uh, the best, most expensive wine you've ever had the pleasure of enjoying? Well, the best and the most expensive are not necessarily the same thing, but the most expensive bottle of wine I ever had was a 2008 Domaine Romani Conti from the Romani Conti vineyard. Which, yeah. Yeah, it was about a $30,000 bottle of yeah, wine. Yeah, it, very it's, nice. My a friend of mine gave it to me as a gift and I drank it. I opened it on my 50th birthday during lockdown and COVID. I sat at my kitchen table with my girlfriend and my son and we, we drank it. Um, oh, nice. It was Great very... Opinion. 
the sharing experience with family. I mean, oh, that was it. Yeah. That's amazing. We we laid down wine when our children were born, you know, because it's just think it's nice and then give it to them when they're 18. Okay. And your favorite book, we didn't even get into quantum physics and spirituality. We might have to have you back and do it another time. But this, this doesn't need to be related to this one book. I was just thinking we didn't get there. But uh, what's your favorite book? I think my favorite book is um, Cryptonomicon by, by Neil Stephenson. Um, but there's probably two or three other books by Neil Stephenson that come really close to making that, that benchmark. Um, probably that's for fiction, for nonfiction. You know, Sapiens is, was pretty life-changing for me. Um, yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably say Sapiens for nonfiction. Okay, cool. Um, all right. And what's your favorite kind of uh, brain hack, if you like, for getting through the endurance running that you do, or do you just love it? How do you how do you get over walls in your mind? So, um, my favorite hack is is chemicals, and so there's okay. two chemicals in particular that I use that are huge performance enhancers. Okay. One is caffeine, yeah. and one is nicotine. Oh, you use nicotine? Okay. Yeah, like nicotine is one of the most powerful uh, performance enhancing drugs on the planet. It just has horrible delivery systems um, that kill you. Um, and so I will use like nicotine gum or nicotine um, uh, like lozenges. Do you have to take like the, tro the trochies with the methylene blue and... Yeah, you do. Yeah, there's a, there, I mean, in the U.S., we have the, there's a number of different carriers, but you can get gum or lozenges or these little packets that look like little tea bags that just have nicotine and nothing else. And if you want increased focus, increased clarity, increased energy, I mean, you drop one of those in, and within 30 seconds, you're bam. Um, same with caffeine. As a matter of fact, I just uh, grabbed an espresso, just had an espresso brought into me. Very nice. So those are two things that are super readily available. And as long as you don't abuse them, um, you, you can get like massive benefits. Like the people that don't drink caffeine ever, you have an espresso, you're right. Yeah. So I try to, to, um, use them when I need them and in a run, in the middle of a run, like put a nicotine on it. It sounds terrible, right? Like I'm going to stop for a smoke in the middle of my ultra marathon. But like a nicotine lodging, like that'll keep me going another three, four miles. I'm just in the zone. I'm focused. I'm energetic. Uh, and then I'll pop a caffeine tablet. Same thing. Yeah. Just yeah. Nicotine is very good. I, I like it when it's combined with um, methylene blue. But have you found like with the gums, I suppose what concerns me, even like people talk about Lucy, for example, it just looks like there's a bunch of other stuff in it and chemicals. Um, that's that's the off-putting part for me. Yeah, I mean, and I and I bet a hundred percent that there is. But if you look at the alternative delivery mechanisms, which are tobacco-based, those are way worse for you, right? So, you yeah. know, you got to got to take a little bit of good with uh, bad with the good. I think, and I'm trying to figure out like the quickest, most effective delivery mechanism with the least amount of side effects. I was reading this one thing about this this um, Alzheimer's researcher that was playing with nicotine as a as a is it something that would help stave off Alzheimer's? And he he was saying that he extracted it into a liquid and he would take like one drop uh, periodically of just pure nicotine out of an eyedropper, which that would be cool, but I don't think that's coming to market anytime soon. 
No, no, I agree. I agree. It's high, the problem is it's highly addictive, right? So it's like controlling the dose, um, right. I think, because it is addictive, as you know. Um, amazing. Well, where can people come and find you, Michael? Thank you for coming on and sharing so much. No, this has been great. Um, so drinkingandknowingthings.com. Um, you can get links to all my wine books on that site. You can certainly sign up for the newsletter. Um, if you want to check out what's going on in the world of Bhutan, um, butanwine.com or at butanwine on Instagram is a great way to find me. Um, if you're interested in our world's greatest rum that we didn't talk about, um, socalrum.com or at socalrum. Um, and if you're interested in business stuff and the business of wine, find me on LinkedIn, Mike Jurgens. Um, easy to find. Just Google Mike Bhutan Wine. <laughs> I'm the only person that's going to come up. Um, but I, I love to hear from anybody. I'm highly accessible. I guarantee if people email me, I will most of the time email them back unless they're yelling at me because I didn't like their natural wine. <laughs> Amazing. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been really fun chatting to you. Probably could have gone on. It's been a lot great, Angela. Thanks again. This has been awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. As always, the show notes will be over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast. And you can download the transcript there together with the show notes and all of the other resources that I have on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.